We're in the Old Testament because this is Old Testament survey. Now, it is before the wisdom writing. So the middle of your Bible should be about Psalms. You're going to go to the left of that. So we have uh, Nehemiah this week, Lord willing, Esther next week. And then we'll be into the wisdom writings, starting with Job. One of my favorite books of the Old Testament. I'm going to have to be careful not to spend many weeks on Job. Some of my kids keep telling me I need to preach Job. You know, there was a Puritan guy who preached Job. I think he was in it for like 16 years. Most of his church left <laughs> because he was in Job for so long. Those Puritans like to really string it out. Okay, well, let's pray. Everybody got a handout that wants one. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word. It is precious to us. It gives us uh, the path, the way of salvation and sanctification. And if it wasn't for Christ saving us, we wouldn't care about your scriptures. But you have saved us and you've given us the spirit. And now we seek to learn. We seek to know you better. And we seek to live a life that is pleasing to you. So help us this morning to see the the theme, the important facts of this book and how it relates to our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah. Where does that name come from? Is that It does come from the Old Testament. What's it named after? The man called Nehemiah. Okay? Um, as we spoke of last week, uh, well, that, that first one should say Nehemiah in, in quotes, but um, the Hebrews saw this as one book with Ezra. So Ezra, Nehemiah, one book. I'm going to make the case for that, but hopefully by the end of today's class. And our Bibles, it's split At some point, the Jewish people split it as well. But originally, this would have been one book. In fact, we still see that in the Septuagint, the LXX. This is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's just combined in what they call Esdras B. And then in the the Latin, which became the Roman Catholic's Bible, first Esdras was Ezra, and second Esdras was Nehemiah. So they're keeping the same name, Estrus, Ezra, but they're split it into two parts as well. Who wrote these books? Who wrote Ezra and Nehemiah? We don't know. It doesn't say. I like Ezra as the author. I think that's a good choice. We'll talk a little bit about authorship later, but um, we can't say for certain. We're not dogmatic. What do the date, what's the date range for beginning of Ezra all the way till the end of Nehemiah? It's the decree of Cyrus. We know that date, 538 B.C all the way till Nehemiah's governorship, his second one, ends. So 430 B.C. So about 100 years. Not that Ezra lived 100 years, but he recorded some things that happened before his life uh, in the beginning of the book of Ezra. So this is just a repeat from last week's there. Um, Not exactly Nehemiah stuff, but it relates. So again, we mentioned briefly last week, if you want to, Uh, When I put the recordings up on the website, you can go back and listen. But this is the way people have seen these two books over time. Today, we of course split them, but originally the MT, the Masoretes, the Masoretic text, the Jewish Hebrew Bible combined it. And this stuff called 3rd and 4th Esdras wasn't ever in the Bible until some people put it in there around 200 BC. And we don't recognize it as Protestants, but... The Vulgate Roman Catholic Church 
does recognize these apocryphal books here. So Vulgate, when you see Vulgate, think Roman Catholic today. It wasn't originally that way. There's nothing really wrong with reading the Vulgate. I think they mistranslate a few places if you, if you know how to read Latin, but uh, they've added two extra books that aren't supposed to be in the Bible. They're called Apocrypha. So what do we notice about Nehemiah? Just literary observations. Well, similar to Ezra, we see a first person, a lot of first person. Most of Nehemiah is in the first person. It sounds like Nehemiah is speaking. So he could be the author. I just think it's probably Nehemiah is telling Ezra his story and Ezra is recording it. So one one, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. So he, he talks about, I, I did this. I asked them. I asked my friends about the Jews in Jerusalem. And he goes on to tell his story. Pretty much the whole section is from the first person. What's the theme of this book? So if Ezra was about rebuilding the temple and reforming the people, what's Nehemiah about? The wall. Rebuilding the wall and reforming the people. It's really more about the people than it is the wall, but Nehemiah gets preached, if it does ever get preached, as Nehemiah is this great leader. We need to be like Nehemiah. He built the wall. He fought off God's enemies. We've got to be like him. We've got to be strong. We've got to build the wall. And generally, it's a leadership series through Nehemiah. Not the whole book, usually, but sections. Uh, We'll talk about how that's not really the best way to, to think about it. But rebuilding the wall does come up most of the book. And reforming the people. So again, backing out, we're going to get the big picture view. What's both of these books about? If they're one book, we should think of them together. Yahweh, the God of Israel, he's been loyal to Abraham and Abrahamic covenant. And he's going to restore Israel. This is the proof that they came back into the land and were restored. The city got rebuilt. The temple got rebuilt. Worship occurred once again at the temple in Jerusalem just like it had been previously. Yet, post-exilic, what's that mean? Remember we talked last week, Greg, about academic words? That's not hard, right? Post-exilic, what is that? After the exile, right? Pre-exilic, Israel before the exile. Post-exilic, after. Um, They have been disobedient. Even though God gave them their land back, He gave them the city back. He rebuilt the temple. He rebuilt the wall. He made sure their enemies didn't interfere. We're going to see, as we did in Ezra, they still disobey, just like they did previously. So the full blessings that are promised in the Abrahamic covenant have not yet come. But they're still anticipated in the future. We're going to leave off on a negative note at the end of Nehemiah. It's not positive. It's not, oh, we're back in the land. The Abrahamic covenant has been fulfilled. We're done with all those covenants in the Old Testament. No, there's still going to be sin. Sin is going to keep cropping back up. They still need a Savior. They still need a Messiah. That's a problem. They don't really have a leader. Nehemiah is not the hero, by the way, of Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra is more the hero. God, of course, is always the hero. But Nehemiah is not this, this wonderful hero that we often hear about. He is a great man. He does pray to the Lord. He does follow the Lord. He does ask to go back and help restore the city and rebuild the wall. But we ought not to think he is um, necessarily the hero. God's the hero. They need a Messiah. And really, Ezra, I think, 
for both of these books is more of a model for us. Outline. Three sections. So section one and section three, that's most of the first person. That's, that's Nehemiah's story. And then eight through ten in the middle there is talking about what happens when Ezra comes and preaches the word. When preaching is restored in the temple. So first of all, we have rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem under Nehemiah. That's what he goes back to do. And that is what occurs in 1 through 7. There's some trouble along the way. So we'll sort of look at that in a minute. Then once the walls have been rebuilt, the temple is protected. The city is protected. People can come in. They begin to worship. The word is preached. And they are greatly changed by the, the word being preached. They have not heard the scriptures preached. You can tell by their reaction. What we take for granted regularly, they went 70 years. They were studying the word in the synagogues. But it's not as if all the people were gathered together hearing the word proclaimed. Reinforcement. Number three, reinforcement of the work under Nehemiah. So there's still some more work to be done even later in the book. And he's going to leave, go back to Persia, and then come back to be a governor the second time. Key chapters. So we started chapter 1. Let's continue here. Uh, so it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. The 20th year of what? 20th year of the king's reign, the king of Persia. While I was in Susa, the capital. Susa is the capital of Persia at this time. And he goes on to say that he spoke with one of my brothers, one of my Jewish brothers, uh, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity. So these are, these are men uh, who had escaped. They were not um, killed. And they had survived some time. And he's asking them, how do things go in the land of Judah, my homeland? I asked him concerning the Jews and Jerusalem, what's it like there? They said to me, the remnant there and the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So the whole city is destroyed and the people who stayed are just, they're poor, they're almost like beggars and there's no city to protect them. So no one wants to live in Jerusalem. Who wants to live in this great city where there's no wall to protect you? And when I heard those words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then he prays. Nehemiah prays to God. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. So we can learn a lot from the prayers of the Bible. You already see he's, he's praising God and he's reminding God of the covenant. What covenant? The covenant that he gave to Abraham. The covenant that God would give them the land. And how is that covenant being fulfilled? Well, it's not, he's saying, at this time. It's, it's barely being fulfilled. There's a few people there. And they're in distress. They're reproached. They're made fun of by all the other nations. So he's asking God to fulfill that covenant. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel. So he's a, just like Daniel does. He admits to his sin and all of their sin. 
and the sin that brought him into captivity. Nehemiah probably wasn't even alive then. He wasn't. And yet he's acknowledging they sinned as a people. I, my father's house, have sinned. He, it's not his fault they're in captivity, but it is their fault corporately though. As a people, they've turned away from God and he's admitting that. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinance, which you commanded your servant Moses. So they hadn't kept the Mosaic covenant. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's what happened to the people of God. They got scattered. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attended to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today. Grant him compassion before this man. Who's this man? Well, the next verse. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. So he's already praying that he's going to go before the king and make a request. The request is going to be, can I go back and help rebuild the city? So chapter 2 comes before the king. He's bearing the cup. The cupbearer is the one who brings the drinks out. He's got to make sure it's not poisoned. It's off of his head if it is poisoned or anything that would cause the king to be sick. So Nehemiah is a friend, really, of the king. The king says, why are you downcast? Why are you sad? Nehemiah tells him. And then the king says, may you go back. Go back. So he gathers up people. He gathers up supplies. And he heads back. By the end of chapter 2, he's inspecting the walls in Jerusalem. So the king here is Artaxerxes. We'll talk about him more later. Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. They rule everything in the known world at the time. Everything from the edge of Greece all the way to India. The Persian Empire is huge. It has conquered all the civilized areas of that time. And the fact that God would change a pagan king's heart. Not only did he change Cyrus's heart so that people could go back originally, but he's still working in the hearts of these kings so that Nehemiah's prayer is answered. And this is a big risk for the king, isn't it? To let someone go back and rebuild the great walls of Jerusalem. Why is that a risk? Is Jerusalem known for their obedience to the kings that have conquered them? Why did Nebuchadnezzar destroy Jerusalem in the first place? Why was its gates burned? Because Babylon came in, they conquered the area, and the Jews submitted to them, but then they rebelled. And what happened? The city was destroyed. From a worldly perspective, that's what happened. Now, we know from God's perspective, he said, I will destroy you if you disobey. I will punish you. What's the risk? Well, that could happen again, couldn't it? What king lets a people group, a whole people group, go back to their home city that worships a different God and then let them build this huge wall in the gates so that they could once again rebel and outlast the siege? In fact, what happens in 70 AD? The Jews do that to the Romans, don't they? Hey, we can last in this city for years. Let's get all the people in and we will defeat the Romans. What happened? Cities destroyed, leveled once again. Chapters 3 through 7 
uh, work happens. Each family works on the section of the wall that is right by their house, if their house is up against the wall. They take turns. Uh, Men have to guard the wall with a sword while the others work, and then they switch out. Because there are tribes and there are other people around that are also part of the Persian Empire, but they're being sneaky. They want this work to not happen. They want it to fail. Why would other people want it to fail? Well, they hate God. They hate the Jews. But they also don't want this city to get all the attention. They want the attention. The Jews have been nothing in their eyes. And suddenly the kings let them go back. They've rebuilt, they're rebuilding the temple. They're rebuilding the walls. They're jealous. They want that attention. Samaria, Moab, Ammon, these other areas want attention. So they try to, try to make it stop. It doesn't work. Let's look at 8.12. This is the preaching chapter. Where, did, where do we get this idea that a guy's supposed to stand up and explain the Bible? Sometimes people will tell you that's just sort of a modern thing. You know, a bunch of European old white guys um, decided it would be good if one person stood up and told everybody else what to believe. That's kind of the, the liberal view of preaching today. Well, the reformers looked to a passage like this. The Catholic Church had taken preaching and they had set it aside. And they made the, the mass the main part of the church. And the reformers said, that's not what the scriptures show. Let's bring the preaching back. Where's one place we can look? Nehemiah 8. This is about Ezra reading the law, and then it gets explained. So, uh, Nehemiah 8.1, if you'd like to follow along. All the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. So they're bringing out the Bible, mainly the first five books, the, the books that contain the law, probably Deuteronomy. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. We have men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. So you even got the children there. If they can understand, he says, come. And the people come out on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. So even though... People joke about sermons being long. This is a long sermon, isn't it? I mean, even some of our younger folks might get a little drowsy. But they're standing up, probably not sitting down. So that helps, right? So this is a multiple-hour sermon. And in the presence of men and women, those who can understand, all the people were attentive, though, to the book of the law. This is not something they get to hear every day. They're attentive, and he's just reading through the scriptures. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for that purpose. Why do we have a wooden pulpit? Why is a wooden pulpit so common? I know it's not as common as it used to be, but again, people say, well, the only reason we have wooden pulpits in churches today is because that's the way it's been done for the last hundred years. We've got to freshen it up a little bit and change it. Well, he's not commanding every church to have a wooden pulpit, but the tradition comes from right here. You've got to have something to put your Bible on. If you have notes, you need something to put your notes on. And wood often looks a little better than other types of material. So that's what they had. They built a podium. They built a pulpit for him to read the scriptures and preach out of. So he stood at the wooden pulpit, which they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood 
all these guys that I could pronounce, but it would take a while. So we're going to skip down to verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. So why do we stand up when we read scripture here? To honor God. And where is that found in the Bible? Right here. Now, it's not an explicit command in the New Testament that everybody's got to stand up, but that seems to be the tradition that has been there since even the Old Testament through the New Testament times. So they didn't have to mention it in the New because it was always there. You stand up when God's word is read. Uh, Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. While lifting up their hands, they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. That's their response to hearing the word of God. They're worshiping God. They're they're bowing down. They are hearing about their God in a way that they've never heard before. And it changes them. It changes their heart. They want to worship God more fully, more rightly. All of these great leaders with these awesome names, you guys should convince your grandkids or or your kids and you know maybe to name their grandkids or your own kids some of these awesome names. Jehozabad, Kalida, Peliah. These are Levites. And they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. So what's the problem here? Well, the problem is they've been living in Babylon and Persia for so long, they can't understand Hebrew. So he gets up to read, and he's reading Hebrew, and they really don't know most of what's being said, but it causes them to worship. Now, how do they apply that to their life? It's in Hebrew. They understand Aramaic. Very similar. It's close. But they really need somebody to come along and explain it. It's another aspect of preaching. And so they took smaller groups because there's hundreds of people, maybe thousands there. I don't know that it gives a specific number. And the Levites are going to go into these smaller groups and they're going to explain what they just heard and help help them apply it in their life. So verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. If I ask Josie reads in Spanish, we might pick up a few words. If you understand Spanish, you might pick up more. But there would need to be somebody to explain the sense so that it could be applied. And that's what's going on here. The people aren't going to really get Hebrew back that well. They'll have to be taught in the synagogues that are also built in the land of Judah. Verse 9, then Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Why would they be weeping? It's convicting. You just told me all these things God expects of me. I've never even heard it, and I feel like a sinner. And they're weeping, and he, sa- he, he builds them up. He says, don't weep, don't have sorrow. This is a holy day. This is a good thing. It's a good thing that you're repentant of your sin. And he said to them, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who is, has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to your Lord. It's holy because the people recognized the word of God. They repented. They had the right kind of response. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God is happy. God is joyful because of your response. Let that encourage you. Let that drive you. Go and celebrate. Have a feast. Send that fatty portion that you save for the feast 
Let's just go ahead and eat it and send it out to our friends, right? The kidneys, the liver, the good stuff, right? All the fat that's in around the liver and the kidneys. The good part of the meat. All right, so celebrate. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. They're that happy that they could understand the Bible. Now they probably heard teaching about God in the captivity. It's not like they never heard about God. But to hear someone stand up and read the Bible and have it explained to them, that was a whole new experience. And this is a great response. So I think that's probably recognized as one of the main uh, key verses there in Nehemiah. Let's talk about a timeline. I think this is on your handout there. We looked at a timeline on Ezra. The first chapter was uh, Nehemiah hears a report concerning Jerusalem. That's about 446 or 445 BC, depending on which nation's calendar that you that you see. Now remember, BC counts down. So the closer we get to Christ, the lower the numbers get. The next year, uh, Artaxerxes makes the decree. Nehemiah returns. So that's what we see really in the rest of the book, all the way up to three, uh, 13.3. So from 2.1 to 13.3 all happens in about that same year, 1445. Uh, they return. They rebuild the wall. Jerusalem is repopulated. Ezra's teaching, that's what we just read. Then they have the, the celebration of tabernacles. So go to chapter 8 if you're still there. And the rest of chapter 8, starting in verse 13, is they reinstitute the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the feasts that God called the Israelites to celebrate, which meant they couldn't have done it in the captivity. Imagine you can't really practice the things that God has told you to do to worship Him because you're in captivity and there is no temple and you can't make sacrifices and you can't go up to Jerusalem to do these feasts. So that's reinstituted. Chapter 9, the people confess their sin again and then... There's this covenant that's made. That's that song, that poetic verse you see probably in your Bible. It's, it's set off as poetic verse. It's a covenant that they make. And that's all of chapter 9. So the confession and covenant of the people. And then the walls are dedicated. They sign a document in chapter 10. And then the walls uh, get dedicated eventually by the end of the book. So Nehemiah... In chapter 5, verse 14, there's this little segment. Go back to 5.14. If we're just thinking of a timeline, there's a segment that kind of summarizes his first governorship. So that's 5.14 and 15. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, so he's appointed by the king to be the governor, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes. For 12 years... Neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors, they did. They laid burdens on the people, etc. So Nehemiah is not eating what the governor sends him. He's relying off of just what God gives them. And he serves there for 12 years. 12 years. That's his first governorship. That starts in 445 and will continue up to 433. Then the second governorship picks up at the very end of the book. He comes back, and he does not find things in a good place. Yes, sir. What was, what was the purpose that 
Um, I think it was basically to say that we don't need to rely upon him. We, we can rely upon God and we're, we're established once again in the land. So we're not, we don't need to be supported by the pagans, right? Um, I think we talked about this last week with Ezra, right? It'd be like if we said, well, you remember these people come up and they want to help Ezra rebuild the temple and he says, we'll have nothing to do with you. Get out of here. That'd be, that would be like if the Mormons and Jehovah's Witness came and they said they wanted to help us plant the church. We would say, you know, we're, we're self-sufficient. The question was, why didn't he accept the food from the king? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's read on. Sometimes that helps just to keep reading, right? 5.15. All right. So maybe the king wasn't sending it, but he had to take it, right? Uh, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people, took from them bread and wine besides. So, yeah, that's it. He doesn't want to lay the burden on the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. So it would be wrong for him to do that. He's just going to trust in God and, and live probably more like the average person there and not up on his high horse eating the best things in life. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for work. So he's not setting it up, having a good life like the former governors. And he doesn't need the, the king's help, really. The people are there. God will take care of them. So back to the end here of Nehemiah 13. It is, there's not a definite um, break here that says, you know, that this is his second governorship. But it says, now prior to this, uh, Elishib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, for Tobiah. Where formerly they put the grain offerings, the storage room where they put things that were offered to God. But, verse 6, during all this time I was not in Jerusalem. So he went away for a while. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. So for whatever reason, he goes to see the king. Maybe the king calls him. So he's away for a time. What happens when he's away? Well, what always happens when the leaders are not present? uh, Sin becomes expressed amongst the people. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. So he wants to go back now. And I came to Jerusalem, learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. He had prepared a room for him in the courts of the house of God. Who is this guy living in the courts of the house of God? It was very displeasing to me. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave him an order. They cleansed the rooms. I returned there, the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. That's dishonoring to God. That's displeasing to God. The, the priest thinks he can just give up a room there for his, who was it? His uh, relation. It doesn't say his relation. The guy kin to him. Verse 10. Tithes are restored. So people start uh, giving a tithe. And then uh, verse 15. The Sabbath is restored. Which meant that why Nehemiah was gone, they weren't tithing and they weren't. They weren't resting on the Sabbath. They were just doing whatever they wanted. And then they had to shut the gates. Nehemiah in verse 19 orders that the gates be shut so the merchants don't come in and sell things and they have business as usual on the Sabbath. It's supposed to be a day of rest. That's part of the Mosaic Covenant. That's part of God's law there. 
And he has told them. That's one of the commandments. Now, 23. So how does the book of Nehemiah end? On a good note? Well, let's read it here. If you're reading your heading there, mixed marriage is forbidden. In those days, so he gets back and sees all kinds of problems. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod. Who knows Ashdod? Who are the Ashdodites? Ashdod, you can still go see it today. These are Canaanites. These are the people that they were sent into the land to run out that they never ran out. In the days of Saul, even before that in the days of Judges, the Canaanites are still around and suddenly, hey, there are some women we can go marry. Ammonites and Moabites. Well, that's against the law of God. For their children half spoke in the language of Ashdod and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So they're marrying, they're intermarrying with pagans. No problem there. And their kids don't even speak Hebrew. They're not even teaching them. They don't care. The kids are speaking, half the kids are speaking Canaanite languages. So what's going to happen? Your kids, they're inheriting what culture there? The Canaanite culture. He says they speak the language. Now he doesn't say that they're worshiping their gods, but that's the conclusion that's going to happen if, if they don't put a stop to it now that's what's going to happen you can see in the rest of it that's that's the conclusion he goes to so i contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair y'all think new testament christian is tough right <laughs> pulled out their head this is serious he's getting very upset with them there's a whole reason they got sent into captivity. And here they go, right all over again, all over again. There it starts. So he's going to pull out their hair. Made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? So I've been telling you all along, that was Solomon's great sin. He started the nation on this path to idolatry why because he married pagan wives hundreds of them let them set up their places of worship and then look what happened to the nation yet among the many nations there was no king like him as great as solomon was and he was loved by god so i think more proof that solomon was truly saved just really stupid at times he was loved by his god and god made him king over all israel nevertheless the foreign women caused even him to sin even this great and wonderful, wise man who God loved, and he seemed to love God, Solomon did, even he sinned. Why? Because he married an unbeliever. He married a pagan. Do we then hear about you, that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, the guy who was trying to cause the wall not to be built, the one who wanted to sneak in and keep them from building the wall. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So it's not just the, the average person. It's the priests, the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign, and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. 
So how does it end? Well, we hope they did what he said, but it doesn't end on a super high note. They're not fully restored. The temple is a tiny little thing compared to what it was under Solomon. And we'll see that in Haggai. The people, they weep. The old people who came back, they saw the first temple, they survived the captivity, they came back and they see the new temple, they weep because it's so much smaller. But it doesn't end on a high note because they have fallen right back into the old trap that caused them eventually to go into captivity in the first place. So uh, God says don't marry pagans. It's that clear. And they didn't. And so what happens, and you saw this in Ezra too. Remember we looked at Ezra last week. Essentially, God is saying they need to divorce them. They need to put them away. And we saw that in Ezra. Unequally yoked, yeah. Yeah, That's it. it's there in the New Testament as well. It's there in the New Testament. Yeah. Now, it's a little different, only because the covenants are different. But, yeah, there there is that teaching. There is that command. And that's why I will counsel people when they ask me, should we marry an unbeliever? This person might be saved. And they might. We can't say for certain. But the Bible says, don't be unequally yoked. And in the Old Testament, you get your hair pulled out and other things if you disobey. Okay, key people. Artaxerxes, he's the, he's the Persian king who was the son of Xerxes I and Vashti. Now, what do we know? Where's where Xerxes I and Vashti going to come up? Next week in, in um, Esther. That's the king that's there in Esther. Uh, stepson. Artaxerxes is the stepson of Esther. He allowed the Jews to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, he's the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, the governor of Judea, the supervisor over the construction. Sanballat, who comes up in the book, he's an influential Samaritan. He sought to end the construction of the walls. He wanted to kill, he wanted to assassinate Nehemiah. Hey, let us come in and help you. Nehemiah says, get away from me. We're putting guys with swords on the walls. They're going to watch the walls day and night. We're going to rotate men just to make sure. Ezra really, I think, is the, the human hero of both books. He's the great reformer. He's the John Calvin of the, of the Old Testament here. He's an expert in God's law and, and the Bible. And he's the one who had the leadership in Israel uh, put away their foreign wives in the book of Ezra. And then I'm sure he's, he's there with Nehemiah doing it at the end of Nehemiah as well. Commentary, same one that I recommended last week. Uh, Gregory Goswell, he says the book is one book. That's the hyphen is for. Okay, let's talk about important things to consider for Christians today. Why care about Ezra and Nehemiah? Why should we read it? Before you look up here, why should we read it? It's God's Word. It's in the Bible, right? It should be important if it's in the Bible. What else? Here, I'll go back so you're not tempted there. Because I say don't look up there and everybody looks. What else? What else? What can we learn from Nehemiah and Ezra? Yeah, that was a good example. Marriages. Marriages. Yeah, what we just talked about. Yeah. What else? God is faithfulness. Yeah, sins just keep coming up. If we don't try to put your sin to death, is what the New Testament says. You have to fight it. It just keeps coming back, keeps coming back. 
Yeah, God takes sin seriously, doesn't he? And Nehemiah's not wrong in doing that. He's not wrong in doing that. It's like if your kids do something bad, you're not wrong to spank them. Now, we don't do that today, but we also don't stone like they did in the Old Testament either. Uh, not because we're so much better than them, but we're under a different covenant. But it was serious. Sin is serious then. Sin is serious now. So it does teach us about God. Well, here's, here's my list. Um, it teaches, or if you already know these things, it reminds you. First of all, God is gracious and merciful, and he keeps his promises. That's the whole point that both Ezra and Nehemiah make uh, in those two books, is that God brought us back to the land. Oh, God, keep your promises. Keep your covenant. Remember your covenant. Remember your people. And of course, of course, God remembers his promises, but sometimes we, we forget that. We doubt that. So it's a good reminder. God is sovereign. This is in every book of the Bible, but I think it's important to remember as tough as things looked at times, God is sovereign. So let's just go to Ezra 6.22. There's many examples of God's sovereignty. I think here's some uh, ones that really stand out to me. Ezra 6.22. Okay. Ezra 22, yeah. And they observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria. That's just Artaxerxes. He's really the king of Persia, but... Assyria is also an area he conquered. So he's called the king of Assyria. God turned the king's heart toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. God turned a pagan king's heart toward God's people. God is sovereign. That's right. It's obvious, right? Who, who would let these people go back and build their wall? Build their temple. That sounds like a recipe for rebellion. But they don't rebel against the Persians. They rebel against everybody else that has lordship over them. The Jews do. But not against the Persians. Uh, 4.15, Nehemiah 4.15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, their plan to disrupt the wall, uh, rebuilding of the wall, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. So God had frustrated their plan. Nehemiah did what he was supposed to do, but it was ultimately God who frustrated the plan. So God is sovereign. It reminds us once again. God's word is to be preached and magnified. We read that in uh, Nehemiah 8. And that prayer, Nehemiah prays, Ezra prays. Prayer is essential to the people of God. And then number five, more is needed than a rebuilt city and temple. Don't you think they would have just been blessed and happy and do exactly what God says? He gave them a city. He gave them the walls again. He gave them a temple. They can worship. But what happened? They fell back into sin, didn't they? Right back into sin. They fell right back into sin. What do they need? Changed hearts. They need a new covenant. They need a circumcision of the heart. They need what Ezekiel and Jeremiah are going to prophesy about. A new covenant where the Holy Spirit will reside in you and, and will make you obey God's statutes. You will want to obey God's statutes. I also think that um, just like Ezra presented the law to the people, like I would add to the list that we are reminded by this book that the law is only to convict us of sin, but not really to save us. Looking into the future, like you said, um, 
Yeah. Yeah, that's good because even though they had this great response, right? Twelve plus years later, they're going right back into their old ways. Yeah, it just—it's it, like Satan just keeps on throwing these things back out to God's people, trying to tempt them. Okay, interpretive problems. We have ten minutes. Most of these are quick, but one's a big one. The historical setting of Nehemiah seven seventy-three. To 10.39. Did I get that right? Yeah, there's 73 verses in chapter 7. Now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, temple servants, all the Israel lived in their cities. And when the seventh month came, sons of Israel were in their cities. And then chapter 8, Ezra reads the law. Then all these things are instituted. So what is that? Is that in 458 or all these other dates that people suggest they occur after Ezra 8.36? Let's go back to Ezra 8.36. Somebody have the answer there? Ezra 8.36. Then they delivered the king's edicts to the king's satraps and to the governors in the provinces beyond the river, and they supported the people and the house of God. So is it happening in 458 or later in 445 when everything is supposedly happening in Nehemiah? And so I'm going with just the timeline that is seems more obvious in the Bible uh, that Ezra, of course, happens first. And he, although there's Ezra 4 where it jumps a little ahead and looks at what's to come, uh, then Nehemiah follows right after the timeline of Ezra. So Ezra returns first. He goes back with the people, and then later Nehemiah comes to rebuild the wall, and they're working together even though Ezra's just mentioned briefly in the book of Nehemiah. All right, what about what I just spoke of, Ezra's return in relationship to Nehemiah's? Because people suggest various things. Artaxerxes the first. So Ezra came back before Nehemiah. I already told you what I'm going to choose on this one. Others say, look, no, no, no. Ezra comes after Nehemiah. Not the book necessarily, but the person, Ezra, comes after Nehemiah. Because in Ezra, it says there are some walls already in the city. Could that be true? that there's some walls in the city and Ezra still comes first? How could that be true? Some walls are left standing. Yeah, you don't need, if you're a conquering army, you don't destroy every brick. That's going to take too long. That's too much work. You just create a few pathways into the city, breach the wall in certain places. Johanan, son of Eliashib, is mentioned both in Ezra and Nehemiah. So how can Ezra come first? It must be the other way around. But what do we know about names in the Bible? Lots of people can have those names. Lots of people can have those names. In fact, there's another guy named Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah that's not Nehemiah the governor. And then the problem of intermarriage occurs both in Ezra and Nehemiah. Well, yeah, it does, but that doesn't mean it's under Artaxerxes II because that's just a problem God's people continue to deal with here. And then others say it's Artaxerxes I, but after Nehemiah. I think you know where I'm going there. They both are under Artaxerxes. Uh, we see that in Ezra. He says he goes back under the command of Artaxerxes. Nehemiah says the same thing. It's just a little later. Artaxerxes ruled for a few years. And so all we have to do is match it up with 
Ezra 7, Nehemiah 2.1. It came about in the month of Nisan and the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So they both go under back under Artaxerxes, Ezra first, second is Nehemiah. Just like in the order of your Bible. All right, the big question. Is it one book, both of these? Are they one book? Are they two books? And it's not like some great sin that we divided them into two books in the Bible, but if you're thinking about the books, if, you're, if I was preaching on it, if it's one book, I need to do what? Go through both of them, right? If it's meant to be one book in God's mind. If it's meant to be two books, well, then I can stop at Ezra. And, or I can just do Nehemiah and tell you guys how to be successful and build the wall and be successful businessmen and family men, right? Joking, I wouldn't do that. One book or two books? What do you think? Anybody got an opinion? What have I been arguing for, Michael? One book. Why? Lots of reasons. I'm going to go quickly. The external evidence. What's external? Things not in the books themselves. How have people thought about this? So the Masoretic tradition. The Masoretes were a group of Hebrews. They were Pharisees. They were Pharisees after Jesus. So around 200, their temple's been destroyed. It's been completely decimated. Jerusalem has. And people are forgetting how to say the Hebrew Bible. They can't read it. It can't even pronounce the words anymore. So the Masoretes get all the texts of the Bible and they put it together and they put the little dots and things underneath it so you can pronounce the vowels. Because normally in Hebrew, it's just consonants. Well, the, the young person who for, doesn't know Hebrew, they don't even know it. They don't even know how to pronounce the word. You, see, the reason the consonants were only needed is because everybody knew how to say the words. Have you ever seen those little pictures where they take out all the vowels and you can still make out the words in English? Why? Because we've heard it so long and so much. Well, that's what it was like. So the Masoretes are concerned the Bible will be lost and people are going to stand up. This is a big deal in the synagogue. You stand up and read God's word. You do not want to mess it up. That's why they have, if you've seen pictures, they have this little stylus that goes along and make sure you're doing everything like you're supposed to. It's, you use it, right? And you're going along reading every word, every accent. So the Masoretes gather that together and they put it together. And from 500 on, they have... Uh, clearly uh, gathered together the best of the best manuscripts. And that's where we get our Old Testament from. It's called the Masoretic Text. Most Bibles. There are a few that still use the Septuagint. It's the Hebrew that we use to translate the Hebrew Old Testament. So it is regarded as one work in that tradition. They count Nehemiah 3.22 as the middle of that book. So Ezra and Nehemiah together, what's the middle? Nehemiah 3.22, that's right in the middle. And we know that because of the way they put their little marks in the margins. They would mark certain things and tell you, okay, this is the middle of the paragraph, this is the middle of the page, this is the middle of the book. So 3.22, how could that be the middle of Nehemiah? It's not. It's the middle of Ezra, Nehemiah. The earliest Septuagint manuscripts, LXX, is, that's Roman numeral 70, Septuagint, the Greek translation. Consider it one book. Josephus, He's an early Jew. He's captured by Vespasian, the Roman emperor, and his son. And they are taking him along, and he's recording everything that the Romans are doing all the way up through the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus, though, he records all these Old Testament books. He considered it one book. 
Melito, an early Christian bishop, considered it one book. The Talmud, which is where the Jews kind of get Judaism today. It was a commentary on a commentary on the Bible, the Talmud. And even medieval Jewish commentators considered it one book. Internal evidence, I'll just run quickly through these. The 20th year is used in both Nehemiah and Ezra as a, as a marker. The destroyed walls of Jerusalem are both mentioned in both books. The book of the law is important. Ezra is called the scribe and a priest in both books. So there's common themes, in other words. The idea that you should be separate from foreigners is present in both books. There are issues with the temple in both books. And Zerubbabel and Jeshua are mentioned in both books. Why is that important? Common themes. It's meant to be one. First and second Chronicles, meant to be one. First and second Kings, meant to be one. First and second Samuel, meant to be one. It's not wrong that we divide it. It just means, hey, we ran out of paper. We've got to put it on this other scroll. Hey, we ran out of uh, sections and the books that are being printed. And so they print another uh, later when printers come around. So, so it's important just to think about it. Uh, why did people say there were two books? Because in Nehemiah, the introduction is different. But hey, there's different introductions in other books of the Bible too. First person material in Nehemiah, this is a big one. Because Ezra says, I did this. And Nehemiah says, I did this. Why does it say, I did this as Nehemiah if Ezra wrote it? Well, Ezra could be just copying down as he interviews or as he's watching and hearing uh, Nehemiah's story. They say, well, it's distinct language. If it's two books, you have the king of Persia mentioned 11 times and the God of Israel in Ezra, but those are never mentioned in Nehemiah. Some say there's two different types of ideas, ideology, ideas. Ezra's religious concerns and Nehemiah's secular concerns. But we shouldn't think like that because Nehemiah is about protecting the city so that what? That people can return there and worship God. How'd you like to be worshiping God at a feast and all of a sudden the Samaritans come in and kill everybody? You need some walls to stop that from happening. That's why the walls are finished before Ezra brings out the book and starts preaching. And then uh, some say there's a repetition of Ezra 2 in Nehemiah 7. Why would that happen if it's one book? Lots of things are repeated in the Old Testament. So I'm going with one book. I'm not starting a new denomination over it, but I think it's meant to be understood together. So as you're reading it, you want to try to grab those two together as you're reading the Bible. What about the book of Chronicles? Some people say Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah were once one book. Why would they say that? Do you guys remember from the end of when we did 2 Chronicles? What's similar? At the end of 2 Chronicles and the start of Ezra, what's, what's similar? The end of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and the beginning of Ezra are the exact same. Almost word for word. So they say, hey, it's meant to be one book. Uh, B, Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah were written by the same author, but it's, it's separate. The chronicler. And then the, the last option is they're meant to be separate books. I think B or C is acceptable. If you think Ezra wrote both of them, then that's why they're so similar. Ezra finishes one, Chronicles, and he starts his next work, which is Ezra and Nehemiah. If you think it's, hey, we can't know, it's probably two different people, then you can choose C. I don't think it was one book. No, I don't think anybody can really make good arguments. So that's it. Any last-minute questions? What are we going to do next week? Esther. Make sure you read Esther. Just read it quick. You can, you can speed read the Esther in a few minutes, but 
you can spend 30 minutes, an hour, maybe an hour to read the whole book, and then we'll discuss it. You'll know more about the book of Esther if, uh, if you read through it. Lord, we come to you once again giving you thanks, praise, honor. All of the Bible is inspired, and Paul says that it's inspired for, for teaching, for reproof, for, for growth, for sanctification, for training in righteousness. Even the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, even these historical books that we've been talking about, they help us, they train us, they teach us. So help us to be good Bereans, always seeking the scriptures to see what is true, to see what is right, to see how to live. We ask for that in the name of Christ. Amen.